Hi, I'm Kit Conway and this is my podcast about moving on after something has happened that has stopped you in your tracks. 2020 has been tough to say the least. I think I've had the worst year ever actually and 2016 was pretty awful for me as well. However, I learned a lot from 2016. I learned that even when things seem like they're the worst and maybe they are the worst, the world keeps turning and you have to get on with it, but it does get better. 2020 has given me something though that I couldn't fix. And to be honest, I'm really struggling with it. It was the death of my former co-host, my best friend, my brother, Stephen Clements. Police, every little thing she does is magic. That was like you earlier on whenever I said... <laughs> what? Kate's going on a health food. Aren't you trying to get yourself yes. fit and healthy? This is after sausage roll gate yesterday. Yeah. We were talking about you eating so many sausage rolls that people started to get in contact with you. Hi, my name's Sheila. I help people with sausage roll problems. We're at Sausage Rolls Anonymous. Come down and we'll help you eat healthy. Yes, a nutritionist got in touch with me called Helen. And then you said this morning, really early at about ten past six, went, well, actually, I've already started today. And yes. like some sort of rubbish magician at a kid's party just lifted a boiled egg out of your pocket. Here it is. I haven't eaten it yet. Out of your ear? What's that behind your ear there, son? <laughs> you still haven't eaten? You're walking around with a boiled egg in your pocket. What's wrong with that? It's in its own... <laughs> Case. I don't even need a lunchbox for it. It's in its own little carry case. How did your life slide to this that you're doing What's spreadsheets for Ulster rugby players and boiled eggs in your book? You will be complaining tomorrow if I bring you a boiled egg in. You're just I jealous. I will be because the smell of them turns me. What are you talking about? You had Indian food last night. I've had to smell that all morning. <laughs> it's been seven months or so since it happened and for a long time I couldn't even string a sentence together which is pretty awkward when you work in radio. But now I want to talk again. I recorded a podcast about losing Stephen and you're going to hear that in a minute. But my attitude has shifted a bit since I did it. I intended to do a podcast all about mental health and in fairness this is going to be about mental health. But my focus now is on moving on, repackaging what we've been given and finding a way to get through the days and to feel like yourself again. It might be that you're going through a divorce or a breakup or you might be struggling with losing someone you loved. Um, maybe you had a dream and it didn't work out the way you hoped, whatever it is. Um, and I know right now all of us are readjusting to life in some way thanks to coronavirus. That been 2020 like. One day though when I was gurning about my husband and I splitting up. Oh why wow, that's what happened in 2016. My husband and I split up. Stephen Clements helped me with it but one day he said to me this is what your life is now and you have to get on with it in that exact tone of voice it seemed a wee bit harsh to me at the time but later on I sat with it and I thought mm, he is right like life's short and we need to find a way to get on with it so what follows now is the original podcast and I do get quite emotional I am in a better place now though uh, than when I recorded that even though it was only a few weeks ago I'm actively trying to find ways to move on but also to bring Stephen with me. Welcome to the Harry Hands podcast. I'm Kate Conway. For any of you who don't know me, I used to co-host a breakfast show in Northern Ireland uh, on the radio with a guy called Stephen Clements. And we did that for about four and a half years together, although he had been on the show before I was. Um, I was brought in whenever his uh, other co-host had left. And although I had known Stephen for about, I suppose I had known him about five or six years before I started like, working with him, we'd been friends. Um, 
But the breakfast show was, as all breakfast shows are, really intense because, well, for us, it was a four-hour show. And you had to set your alarm every morning. Mine would go off at four o'clock. I think he was a wee bit later. But it really changed your life working on breakfast because your day, you had to completely shift your day because if you're getting up at four o'clock in the morning, for me anyway, I don't operate on not much sleep, but I would try and be asleep for nine o'clock because whenever you were, were in and you were on air at six o'clock, you couldn't be tired. You couldn't be grumpy. You had to be on and you had to be ready to entertain and be funny and be silly and run quizzes and competitions. And, you know, it was a really demanding show. And especially the way Stephen did ours, there was a lot of editing involved, a lot of phone calls, a lot of text things. It was it was really, really, really busy. Um but people always used to say to me, how are you so awake at that time in the morning? But you know what it was? It was my connection with Stephen. As soon as we saw each other, we started to, the nonsense. We just started bickering. And and that's just the way our relationship was. We fought the bit out. We absolutely tormented each other. But it was in a brother-sister type way where every other people knew that it, what we weren't actually fighting you know, we would call each other names and make fun of each other. and But it was always done out of love. And it was sort of like victimless comedy, if you like, when he was calling me things like hairy hands, moon face, etc. Um, people knew and people people felt part of that joke. Actually, listeners used to ring in. Sometimes if, if Stephen and I were having a disagreement or some kind of a debate on the show, like, for example, one time we were talking about James Bond could James Bond's character be a woman? And I was very much, yeah, it's going to be a woman, blah, blah, blah. So, cue all the people ringing in. And people would say, tell Harry Hans to back off. So people would address me then as Harry Hans. And any time we went out anywhere and would meet someone and be introduced as, oh, Kate from Stephen and Kate or whatever, I could see people looking at my hands to see if they were Harry. Anyway, we would meet each other in the car park and start fighting, but... As soon as we got in to the station, he would go and sit down on the sofa and start sort of thinking about, you know, just getting in, getting in the right frame of mind for the show. And I would go and make coffee and tea and his breakfast every day. Had his breakfast made. It used to be porridge. And then he moved on to Alpen when he was on a health kick, which I called Misery Sand. And I used to I used to hate feeding him the Alpen. So I started to buy crunchy nut clusters to mix in, you know, just to kind of jazz it up a wee bit. And then um, some days he would demand all clusters. He would say, all clusters today. Um, but I loved, loved it. I loved looking after him because we had a good relationship where that was the way I looked after him. Then he looked after me sort of in, in different ways. He was such a good friend. Like he really, really was. So we would do the show from six o'clock to ten and then we'd hang around after the show and fight a bit more and bicker and talk about stuff. Or sometimes he would just strut off and I would have to sit there and when people, sort of managers and different people would come looking for him, I'd have to make up some excuse as to why he'd had to leave. Anyway, and then we would host a big events together like awards dues or Christmas lights. We did the City Hall Christmas lights. Um, I think that was 2018. Um, Halloween down at Titanic Quarter, 30,000 people. And we also made a lot of videos for clients, you know, if it was competitions or we would go out to their premises and make, you know, just sort of videos about what their products were or what they did or whatever. So, you know, we spent an awful lot of time together doing doing things that really required quite a lot of intensity and energy and, and trust because, you know, you, 
whenever we would be making those videos, Stephen didn't like to use a script. He would just go wing it and I had to be able to keep up, had to be able to follow. In fact, that was pretty much the whole show. Um, but we've really gone into our groove. We're really doing really, really well. And then last summer, he got a job at the BBC and Stephen and Kate was over. Now, I wasn't, I wasn't annoyed. A lot of people ask me that. Was I annoyed that he left? And genuinely wasn't because I knew that was his dream. He had always told me that, oh, I'm going to go to the BBC, I'm going to do this, this and this. You know, he had, he had talked about that for years and he had hoped, you know, he would work on BBC Radio Ulster and then after a number of years, maybe he would get on to Radio 2, things like that. You know, I mean, he was on, on the path to something, as I say, that he had always wanted and things were going really well. I mean, that was his dream job. So no, I wasn't annoyed. Um, like, I genuinely loved him. So, for me to sort of be annoyed or... I mean, I was sad, of course. I was definitely sad because it was the end of Stephen and Kate. And, you know, on a practical level, it meant I wouldn't see him as much. And on a professional level, it meant me starting all over again, basically. But it was his dream. He had always wanted to work at the BBC. You know, and it was his dream to kind of do Radio Ulster and then maybe go to Radio 2, whatever. And... Off he went and I and you know, I just had to kind of treat it like the way I suppose a parent treats a child when they have to let them go. That sounds really a bit overly dramatic, but that was how I felt about it. It was just like flipping go for it. That's brilliant. But actually after he, he did leave, it was awful. It was absolutely awful because so much of my identity was tied up in Stephen and Kate. And I just missed him as well. Just missed him and it was hard. It was just really, really hard because I had to kind of, again, I suppose just sort of start from scratch again and try and figure out, oh, okay, what do I do now? But but again, there was no sort of, I wasn't annoyed at him for doing that. It was just, that's life. I mean, I always knew the show was going to end at some stage. So, you know, I was just trying to sort of get on with it. And then, you know, we went to the BBC and he co-hosted Open for Summer which was um, a show at the time when they had the the Open up in the North Coast last year. Hosted that with Colin Murray and Holly Hamilton and then then started his own radio show and then co-hosted Children in Need again with Holly. You know, he seemed to be doing really well. I saw him at the... St- well, I saw him sort of... Obviously, I saw him. You know, we still... I was on the phone to him most days and texted him most days and then... You know, we'd meet for coffee at different times or whatever. And so the start of January, I went to see him and we had coffee and we had a good catch up. Like a good long, like we got about three hours of just kind of hanging around and chatting. And he was telling me about the different things the BBC had planned for him and how he felt about it and whatever. I left him and went to see Edna straight away, who was also part of our show. And he said, oh, tell Edna I was asking for her, how is she, blah, blah, blah. And away I went. And that was a Saturday. And then on Tuesday morning, I got a phone call to say he was gone. And that he had um, he had made the choice himself. He had taken his own life. And it was really, it was a complete shock. As I say, when I saw him on the Saturday, he was grand. Nothing alerted me. Nothing. Like, yeah, I wouldn't have said he was on top of the world. But he was, he seemed solid. He seemed... He seemed content with what he was doing. And then, but he wasn't. And that's why, that's why I'm here now. 
I mean, I'll be completely honest. I never wanted to do a podcast about this. About anybody doing this. I'm much more comfortable talking about sausage rolls. And how much leopard print I wear. And the cats. And things like that. But here we are. And why in particular I've chosen to talk about it. Is after Stephen died. I got inundated with messages. My phone did not stop. I mean it's usually busy anyway. It didn't stop. I got Instagram messages. Facebook. Texts. Emails. Phone calls. Every medium of communication. Children came to my front door with flowers. I mean there was everything. I had really underestimated. Because I've never lost anybody. Sort of in that way before. Or you know I'm I'm very lucky I have. Um, I still have both my parents. And my brother. And, do you know what I mean? I haven't had to. I haven't had to face grief in that way before. And I had really underestimated. How important it is. When people reach out to you. And send you messages. Or just say. I can see your heart. I'm thinking about you. It, that's honestly what carried me through. It was phenomenal. But here we are nearly six months later. And I'm still getting messages on a daily basis about Stephen. And I'm sorry if my tone of voice sounds like I, I don't want them. I do want them. It's lovely. But the messages are fall into sort of different categories. And that's what I want to talk about. So there's a huge category of people who are just shocked that Stephen's gone. Full stop. Then there's people who are shocked that he's gone and how he went. Because he seemed to have an absolutely perfect life. His career was going was skyrocketing. You know, great salary. Everything that goes along with that. Great opportunities ahead. I mean, unbelievable. I mean, he'd already hosted Children in Need and that other thing in the summer. And there was more TV coming, whatever. Anyway. And then I also get messages from people who are feeling really low. And they aren't sure about their own purpose. And why they're here. And they're looking at Stephen and thinking, well, his life was brilliant. My life, my life isn't like that. And I feel really low. And so they'll say that. And then also I'll have messages from people who are worried about me and say, I think about you all the time. You're never far from my thoughts. Just basically people acknowledging that I'm hurt. Um, also messages from people who miss Stephen and Kate. They miss who we were as a couple on radio. They miss that chat and that, you know, because we were part of people's day every morning for years. You know, when they kept up to date with just the story of what was going on in our lives. That, that's part of, of a breakfast show. You know, you kind of bring the listeners along on this journey of what, what's going on in your life. You know, you have to share quite a lot. So people really felt that they knew Stephen and they knew me, you know, were their friends rather than, you know, voices that are coming through their car radio on their commute um, and that was a beautiful thing you know and also I get messages from people who have lost somebody in the same way other people who have have, have the after sort of the aftermath if you like of suicide in their lives be it you know a parent a friend a child um, a co-worker whatever it is and want to connect with me to just say Things like, you know, 
for me it's this many years later and this is how I feel now um I just wanted to reach out to you or or even people who have lost someone in a in a different way and they know the they're really just reaching out over the the pain of the pain of loss but the point is I feel that people want to connect about it and it's about sharing that experience I am absolutely not an expert so I want to talk to an expert just about those about those messages and about and about this matter because this affects everybody in some way I mean I never thought it would be at my door but here here I am as I say and and I just feel like I'd like to have an honest conversation about how it has impacted me because I'm not the only one and if you're listening you're in the same boat you're not the only one and sometimes just hearing that somebody else has walked that path really helps. It doesn't bring the person back. And it certainly doesn't ease the pain. But it just kind of feels good. It just kind of feels... I don't even know how to put it into words. It's just helpful to connect with somebody else who has been through it. Okay, so I had a slight meltdown there. I think I'm just a bit overwhelmed. As you, as you know, I'm not an expert, but I do have one here to speak to and um, I have a lot of questions, but we'll just see how many I can actually get through. Siobhan O'Neill is a professor of mental health sciences at Ulster University, and she has recently accepted the role of mental health champion for Northern Ireland. So Siobhan, you, you've been working in this field for quite a number of years then? Yeah, that's right. Um, I've been at Ulster over 20 years, Ulster University, and um, for the past certainly 10, 15 years, I've, I've been studying suicide and mental health, particularly in Northern Ireland. Yeah. So um, I'm in the right um, place then, I think, anyway. Um, so I wanted to talk to you because, um, as, as you know, we lost Stephen Clements at the start of the year, and it was, it was just such a shock. You know, not just for me, but for his friends, for his family, for people who felt they knew him through the radio show as well you know and a lot of people knew of him but not mm-hmm. you know but didn't listen to the show you know so like most people knew of him if you, if you sort of stopped anybody in the street they would sort of know the name and then actually well I suppose anybody who who had never heard of him definitely knew about him after it happened because it was all over the media for so long but there were, after it with the shock came this unbelievable outpouring of love and of grief and of sadness and support and at the start I couldn't I couldn't really hear any of it as such I mean my phone was going I just had to switch my phone off because I didn't I wanted to just hide in a wee shell and for it not to be real but I got thousands and thousands of messages I'm not exaggerating thousands and they came from Instagram Twitter Facebook um I got cards in the post I got tweets I got everything and there was even children came to my house, like two different unconnected sets of children who live nearby came with flowers because they would listen to us on the breakfast show. And it was like nothing I have ever experienced. And I think the shock came from people who would have looked at Stephen and thought, your, your star's rising. You know, he had just got the job at the BBC. He appeared to have, you know, he you know, had been on a good salary and he appeared to have this sort of perfect life if you like you know he's a good looking fella he was fit and healthy as far as we knew and people just couldn't really seem to understand why 
he would do that. And I, th I think yeah. that's the shock. It's, it's a huge shock. I mean, Stephen was a legend. He was a role model for so many people. He was the kind of person that the people really looked up to. Um, and the very idea that he would be so in a place where, where he might think about taking his life was just, it's unimaginable. It, it really, really is. And, and that, that's the case, actually, with a lot of suicides in Northern Ireland and in other places that, um, you know, with people that you would least expect. And there are very few signs. And it's really, really shocking and really difficult. Um, and the aftermath of that, the struggle to try to understand why such an amazing person with absolutely everything going for them um, would do something do something like that um and it's you know and you do wonder if he'd known about all those people who loved him and cared about him would that have changed things and i suppose that just shows you the importance of the social connections like it, it's it's good for the bereaved afterwards and, and in many ways it keeps you going but um having that knowing knowing that you're loved knowing that you're wanted that people want you to stay around is, is a huge is a huge part of it as well you know? mm -hmm. A lot of people have messaged, um, when, I, when I do talk about the messages, I'm aware that my tone of voice can be a bit sort of brisk. I really appreciated getting all the messages. I really, really appreciated mm -hmm. it because it, it is definitely what carried me through. And we can talk about that a wee bit more later. But people just, people are messaging me saying, was it because of this or was it because of that? And I, 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 I can't answer it. I don't think it's, uh, yeah those ways those ways Kate that, that's yeah and after after suicide that's a big question and people will ask why and those that are left behind ask ask that question as well um <clears throat> thinking about the research you know there's been a lot of studies of people who've survived really serious suicide attempts um and people who are in that place and it's, a, it's actually quite common to feel suicidal um but but when we talk to people who who have been there and you ask them why they, you know, they talk about pain. They just talk about an overwhelming pain. It's very difficult even for them to put a reason on on that. And it's usually a number of different things. Um, so whilst if you look at the statistics, we know that people who are unemployed, who, who live in deprived areas, who have lots of exposure to suicide, where they know other people who've, who've died by suicide, all of those are are factors that can increase your risk but when you talk to people who have come through this they just talk about this unbearable pain and they can see no other way of getting through that pain they'd like this tunnel vision um, and suicide is something they do to address that psychological pain um, and and so so we would say that the question of why is maybe an inappropriate question we will never know why and and maybe the person themselves doesn't know why they just know that they just can't cope anymore. They just cannot go on. Um, and so, you know, when we ask the question why, that's what we'll get. <clears throat> so when people talk to you now, Kate, about why, I suppose the reason is that he felt he couldn't go on. Um, that's, that's, the, that's the only reason there, there really is. That's the reason they're always, there, there usually is. You know, they just, they just can't go on for a whole stack of different reasons. Um, and that's why it's important to ask for help because when you're talking to somebody who's an expert in suicide prevention or counsellor or something like that, they can start picking um, through that pain and working out where that pain is coming from. 
and how to start sorting out all the different things that have fed in to, to that pain at that time for the person to get them through it. You know, and we know we, we can get people through suicidal pain. Um, there was a study we did about 15 years ago where we found like about 10%, nearly 10% of people in Northern Ireland actually had felt really seriously suicidal at some point in their lives. But most, most people don't ever act on that. They get through that. Um, and I just know so many people who've been there, who've, who've asked for help, who've, who've gone and got support, who've talked about it. And that pain that they thought they could never get through has been resolved to to some extent at least, you know, when they found a way to keep going and to keep living. So, you know, I, I think that's one of the main messages that, that I would like to get out from today's conversation is that no matter, you know, no matter where you are, what your problems are, that it's really important that you give life a chance, that you give all these services that are out there a chance, that you ask that you ask for help and that you talk about this stuff because you know you don't know what what the other options are particularly if if you've got depression or something like that it can really cloud your judgment about what way your life's going to be does that make does that make sense I suppose yeah yeah it does and to be honest that's that is something I wanted to ask you about because that's one of the things that has really wound me up about this has really upset me about it that he didn't reach out and tell any of us you know Stephen had a very hardcore of friends that he knew he could rely on and you know he knew he knew how I felt about him as a friend in fact our, our very last sort of um text conversation I had been reminding him it was the anniversary of something that had happened with me something very upsetting happened with me and he had helped me through it and I had said to him you know this happened on this day you know whatever and you were there for me and you dragged me through this and I'm eternally grateful etc and you know so we we we'd we were very close friends very very close and so he knew you know that he could come to me and if not me there was a, a lot of other people that were good really solid friends but he chose not to and anybody that followed Stephen on social media will remember he was never done sharing it's okay not to be okay and helpline numbers and he and I hosted the darkness into light walk and for anybody who doesn't know what that is, it's uh, it's re- it's organised by Pieta House, and it's to raise awareness of suicide and its impact. And um, the walk starts. I think it's about three or half three in the morning. Sort of, it's dark, and then you walk through the sunrise, and you walk from darkness into light. About sort of, you know, seeking help and um, and again raising awareness of of the support there are, are there is out there for for people who are feeling that way. We hosted that twice. So it's not as if Stephen didn't know there was help there or that it's okay not to be okay. But he still, it just still wasn't enough. And that has really, that has, I have to say, has really upset me. Yeah, so, I'm sure it has. It's, it, it can make people feel really angry about this. You know, why did they not talk? Why they know they could have told me, they, they can tell me anything. Um, we've talked about talking about this stuff, but yet when it came to it, they just couldn't say the words. What's really, missing? Really like, what, what is, what's, what are we not doing? Or what? It's just, whenever, whenever you're in that place, talking about it is, is sometimes impossible. Really, really impossible. It's just not, you can't say the words. Um, you, you can't see the purpose of talking about it. Um, 
so so that 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 idea that there's nothing can be done for me there's nothing out there that there's nobody can help me you know that's part of it as well people really see that there's no other options so they think that by talking that there's no point in talking really um and and it's it's interesting that we you know we talk a lot about suicide in the context of mental illness so people often think that you know other people are suicidal and they have a mental illness but for them it's different it's about their life and it's about the life that they think they have ahead of them. So they don't see that as them having a mental illness. And they might not even have a mental illness. You know, the, the most recent research is telling us that people with just, you know, even mild mental health problems can be suicidal. Or, you know, if the right sort of got the wrong combination of things happen in any of us, to any of us, that we might feel suicidal. So this is as much about our life and life events and things that happen around us as having a mental illness so you know if, if somebody's thinks that they don't have a mental illness and they think that they're going to be given treatments for a mental illness if they talk about this stuff then that that will stop them from talking about it um this is about human emotions it's about our life it's about whether life is worth living in a sense um and people don't equate that with something that you can get help with people don't think that that there's that there's um options there but there actually is in suicide prevention, the interventions that we do with suicide, with people who are suicidal um, are around giving them hope that, that, that we can create a life that's worth living for them. And we, you know, we, we don't sugarcoat the fact that people have problems in their lives, but it's really about giving that person the hope um, and looking at their reasons for living and trying to increase those and help them through whatever problems they have that make them feel that their life's not worth loving. And sometimes that can mean a treatment for mental illness, but often, often it doesn't. Um, and I think still, Kate, there's a stigma about men talking about their problems and their mental health and their mood and how they feel about things. Um, and it's just often too much, you know, for a fella to admit that, particularly somebody who's high profile, um, you know, there's just maybe so much more to lose. They feel that, that it's so stigmatized that it's this is for other people. This is not something that can happen to me. Um, yeah. And but we will never, we will never really know. Um, that's that's the problem. But men particularly have difficulty talking about their emotions and their feelings. Um, yeah. And think, so go ahead. <clears throat> no, I was going to say sometimes they they think that this can't be fixed. This is not solvable so there is no point to talking um but sometimes just even vocalizing it saying it can be a huge relief and it can be the start of a journey towards healing towards sorting stuff out and i've seen that many many times but the first step is to, is to say it is to acknowledge that that there's something wrong and that's the hardest step for some people i think just even from you saying that you you've kind of reminded me of one of the things i wanted to say to you about was sort of comparison because maybe, maybe if you are somebody who appears to have everything going for you, if you turn mm -hmm. to somebody and say, feeling a bit low, they would maybe say, sure, what have you got to worry about? You know, because you seem to have everything and so-and-so has got it much worse. Sure, this person lost their job and did this and did this, you know, and it shuts down. Because I know I, um, <clears throat> I've, whenever I was thinking about doing this podcast, I, I was chatting to somebody about it. And I was like, look, I need to make it really clear. This isn't about me. I'm not doing this. This isn't about me. And he goes, kid, this is about you, though. This is how you feel. 
And I'd be like, yeah, but I don't want people to think I'm, you know, I'm trying to get attention for myself or whatever. And he goes, but just because other people have it worse than you, it doesn't mean you're not experiencing pain. And, and I think we do, we do hold back from saying how we feel sometimes because you don't want to feel like you're, you're gardening. Do you know what I mean? You're complaining about nothing because so-and-so down the road has it much worse. But I don't know if that's a Northern Irish thing, maybe. No, it's, it's, it's a common, it's a universal thing. You know, we feel really guilty when we see what's happening in other places, in other countries, to other people. We, um, and, and sometimes gratitude is a good thing. You know, if we can have that attitude of gratitude, as they say, where we are grateful for the things in our own lives. lives. But, um, you know, when you're in a dark place, it's your life that you think about. Um, and we set ourselves sometimes impossibly high standards and we expect that, that we're going to have that perfect life and that, you know, it's okay for others to have problems, but that shouldn't happen. That shouldn't happen to us, you know, that that's not something that, that, we, that we should allow ourselves to have. But somehow that, that feeling bad is, is not our right, you know, and, and we have our right to our feelings. We, we you know we have we've, we've all got feelings um and it's really important that we acknowledge them and are kind to ourselves uh, you know because that self-compassion is essential um we, we're all humans at the end of the day kate you know um whether it's you or me you know and we feel our losses and and they hurt us individually and, and uniquely um and it's important that we acknowledge that um, social perfectionism is an issue that's associated with suicide, particularly in, in Gears, actually. You know, we find that high achievers um, are prone to suicidal thinking when things start to go wrong uh, for them because they have such high expectations of their lives, you know. And I think there's a lot of aspects of society that, that can feed into that sense sometimes that everything has to be perfect or everybody else's life is perfect, you know. Um, social media hasn't helped. We've got pictures of people um, that are not actually, you know, really them. Um, and, you know, that's fed to us through our phone. You know, we, we get that on a daily basis and that can leave us feeling really inadequate when we're comparing ourselves against those unrealistic um, role models and things so life isn't perfect but it can be hard really hard to accept that and to grieve when things don't work out to, to actually accept that life's not going to be perfect you know um, so yeah unrealistic expectations can, can they can't prevent us from from talking about you know and particularly people you know even in my world in, in academia where we're all very competitive and we set ourselves high standards then when we fail to meet our own standards that that can leave us feeling really deflated um, but we can get through that we can get through it and often we're much stronger as a result of these things that have happened to us but um, it, it can be really hard at the time things can feel overwhelming mm. I find what overwhelms me is my inner monologue, the wee voice mm -hmm. in my head that say, will take me from something that has happened that is maybe minor and it snowballs it into something really, I think it's called catastrophizing, is it? Where you just yeah. take a small yeah. and your brain just makes it bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. And my brain has a terrible habit of running away with me like that. And it, it leads to very dark thoughts. Mm -hmm. Oh yeah, catastrophizing. I mean, particularly at the minute in a pandemic, you can pick a, a thought and 
and from from that very very small thought you can you know build it up and build it up that you know you're and at the end of it all your life's not worth living because of whatever thing it is and this is going to lead to something else and something else and something else um and and that's that's where talking can really really help because it can shut that down and just another person's perspective coming in there can help you realize that that's actually what you're doing that you're catastrophizing and that these logical sequences that you have in your head they are just thoughts they're not necessarily reality um you know so part of counseling for for suicide prevention is working out what what's you know what what's a logical what's logically going to happen here and what have we got control over and what what can we change you know and, and challenging those thoughts it's part of cognitive behavioral therapy as well um it's, and it's another reason why mindfulness can be quite useful because when you when you start kind of reflecting on those thoughts and thinking about the fact that they are just thoughts um and testing how real they are and giving yourself the opportunity to think differently about things um can, can be really powerful and mindfulness can help can help with that but the, the, i suppose the starting point is to realize that these are just thoughts and and they're associated with how we feel but we can change them we can we can have control over them um but you know it can be quite a complex process and, and that's why it's good to talk to a professional if, if you're having those sorts of thoughts are catastrophizing all the time and you can't identify you know what's real and what's just in your head you know that, that can be something that you can get help with mm-hmm. yeah because sometimes it feels very real but if you take the the initial thought and verbalize it to somebody else um mm-hmm. they can just go oh well you know sometimes i've, I've just maybe misunderstood something or i have there's a bit of information i didn't have and and, and that clicks and i go all right okay that's fine but it helps sometimes when I realize I'm, I'm able to catch myself on now and I realize it's a thing now. And so I'm able to sort of stop myself when I realize, when I start to, because it gives me this feeling of dread. And sometimes when I feel that, I go, hang on, what am I thinking about? I'm, do you know what I mean? And I pay more, more attention to it. And then I just go, right, okay, come on, get back in the room. Let's just start again with this. Um, but in terms of talking to people, it's important to talk to the right person because sometimes you can open up to somebody and they're maybe not a true friend and sometimes people are happy to hear that you're not feeling good do you know what I mean in a sort of a twisted way I think it's like a, like a toxic friend I think they called her a friend of me or whatever and sometimes do you know what I mean yeah. so it's important to, or yeah. maybe somebody else is just completely preoccupied with themselves and they, they aren't able to really hear you so how, how do you find the right person Oh, I mean, that, that's, that's such a good point. And even the people who really care about you, you know, they may well be so shocked that you're feeling down or whatever and, and genuinely would, would, would feel that, that you have nothing to be annoyed about, you know, that you, you, they, they would give you that. Um, sure, what have you got to be worried about? That, that, that's not how it works. Um, but I think somebody who's, who you really trust is good but then you know sometimes your closest friends you don't want to let them down you don't want to disappoint them by telling them things about yourself or how you feel and that's why like talking to Samaritans for example or Lifeline can be really good and even it's not just even if you're suicidal but even if you just um, feel lonely or feel it you can't you don't have anybody else to to talk to they can be really really useful to 
to just have a conversation with them and to share and to share those feelings. Um, because yeah, you're you're right. Your friends will have their own concerns and um, they'll be preoccupied with, with those sometimes. So it's it's really difficult. But um, what would what we would like to create in Northern Ireland is like a network of people who can have those compassionate conversations and, and listen to someone whenever they they are disclosing that they, that they might feel suicidal um, and are comfortable and kind of listening to that and hearing that and then have the ability to go on and phone a helpline and help somebody get help um, because because ultimately that's what we you know that's what we need to do is is ask for help and get help from one of the professional groups um, especially if somebody's planning suicide or thinking about suicide I think that's a, that's a sign that something really needs to change and it's always better to get to try and get help with that rather than to struggle through it on your own mm. um, because as we know most people who have those thoughts do get through them but um, it, it can be you know th that, that's a really really bad low place to be so you know mm. ask for help from one of the professional groups if if you don't feel that you can talk to a friend um or a relative or somebody like that well i've never called any of the helpline services but i have seen several counselors over the the years and i know that whenever you you first go in and sit down you know it takes a lot to actually just walk across the door and then you sit down and you, you have this moment of what, what do i say now and that's mm -hmm. what i wanted to ask you about the helplines how do you you make that obviously i know how to dial i know how to dial a number how do you start that? How do you start to, the conversation? What do you say? Don't have what to do say they anything. say first? Sorry, when they answer, what do they say? Obviously, they'll say the name of the service, but then what do yeah, they say? Yeah, with Samaritans, they say, Samaritans, can we help you? Um, and, you know, some people can't find the words then and and, and that's okay. Or they, they just say hello or... Um, you know, the, the volunteer or the, the person at the other end of the phone will, will be trained to deal with that situation, will, will ask you questions that, that might prompt a response or an answer. But callers don't have to talk if, if they don't want to. I mean, it can just be about finding the kind voice or, or hearing that voice, knowing someone cares can be really can be really powerful and really important um so you could start by just giving your name or you don't even have to if you don't want to um or you could just um say you know the, the reason or the thoughts that you're having i'm feeling a particular way and i wanted to talk about it that that that's maybe a good way of starting i'm feeling really low today and i wanted to talk um is that okay you know and, and have the conversation from there um and a lot of people feel very apologetic when they're phoning, like they're bothering, you know, the, the, the person on the other end of the line. And that's not the case because these are volunteers who are there to help you. Um, and sometimes they're paid counsellors that are there to help and that's what they want to do. And so you should never feel guilty about, you know, even and even if you're not actively suicidal or feeling, you know, just to have a conversation with someone um, in Samaritans or Lifeline. It's a, it's a, you know, a helpful thing to do to help you work through your problems. Um, sometimes talking to the GP can be really difficult. So as well, you know, and we know that in our studies that men particularly would, would have been to the GP before 
you know, taken their lives, but they they didn't often talk about mental health problems or their their emotional or their feelings, their emotional well being or their feelings. You know, they didn't talk about that. They talked about other things. Um, and we're starting to understand now that, that maybe psychological pain is felt differently. Um, a man, a woman, and a man do report headaches and back pain, physical symptoms that are actually manifestations of an underlying um, psychological pain or suffering. You know, so GPs are now a lot more aware of these things and will probe a bit deeper. Um, and there's there's lots of GPs in Northern Ireland have actually gone through training in suicide prevention. So they, they're kind of, they, they know that they, they can ask questions and dig a little bit deeper. So even just saying, I'm really struggling, is, is a good way of opening up that conversation. Um, and, you know, if if you know somebody who's feeling like that and can't phone a helpline, it's okay to phone that helpline for them or with them or do that kind of practice call with them where you're, you're sitting there and, and you're, you know, I, I've done this literally phone at the helpline and say, look, I'm here with my friend X and they're feeling very, very low and they're going to give you a wee call later and we're just calling you now to, to check, to check it out. So they know what to expect. Um, and usually the person on the other end of the line is just so kind and lovely and says, look, we're looking forward to your call and we're here to help and you can tell us anything. Um, and that can be enough to break down the barrier of asking for help from one of the, the formal helplines. Yeah, I think that's helpful because, I mean, I get paid to talk for a living and sometimes I ring somewhere, as you said, it could be the GPs or, you know, somewhere where I need to get some information across and I start stumbling. And so whenever I thought, you know, I was, I was thinking about the podcast and what we we're going to talk about and I, th- I was thinking about the helplines, I thought, imagine myself ringing and I thought, oh, how would I? what would I say but as you say they're, they're friendly and they just they, they'll listen but mm-hmm. I think you can't say anything good. wrong there's nothing you can say that's wrong but but you know what kid I think we're, we're sort of we don't make as many phone calls as we used to make um you know we do a lot of stuff by text now and we're, we're all very efficient in our communication so this can be a really difficult thing for people to do really difficult like to start talking on a, on a you know, on a phone line, on a phone line to somebody that that's not that's not there in front of them, particularly a fella. You know, so mm-hmm. um, there's there's text lines, there's other ways of doing this, of reaching out as well. So is, um, is that, that don't um, involve phoning phoning a helpline. You know, and do you mean like is it Lifeline? Martins have text. So Martins have text services. Yeah, yeah, they have a messaging service. Um, so they they you can communicate that way. Most of their uh, work is still done over the phone, you know, and, and it's that's a good way of um, working things through and, and having sort of deeper conversations. But you know, an initial contact by text or message is is um, very often the case as well, and they're finding more and more that's how, particularly young people, um, communicate and talk about things. So it need it needn't be a phone call if that's not something the person's comfortable with. Um, but just saying it to somebody, just having that kind person saying, yeah, yeah, this is really hard for you, validating it. There's a wild power in that and we don't realise it, you know, and even just, you know, when some when we're there with somebody, we, we often will want to try and fix things for them. When we realise that they're suffering, we want to fix it. But, you know, just being there with them and their pain, listening 
and saying, I care about you, you know, it's really hard for you. I see that you're really struggling. That that can be an important intervention too. Mm-hmm. That, well, you talked about, yeah. That's one of the main things I wanted to ask you about because I didn't have that conversation with him. You know, he didn't, he didn't sort of seek me out or, or anybody that I know of to have that conversation. But I often think, well, what if he had? Like, what would I, how would I have handled that? What would I, what would I have said? And I think that, that we keep saying to everybody, it's okay to be okay, blah, 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 talk to somebody. But what if you're the somebody that the person turns to? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. What, what are the, can you give us ideas on like what, what's a, a helpful way or what's a way to be helpful to that person? Yeah, yeah. But, but even before I go there, Kate, it's important to say that you should not feel guilty. This is not your fault. You know, he didn't talk to you. That doesn't mean there's anything wrong with you. It might have meant that he was so close to you and he just, you know, it's, it's not, it's no reflection in you. And when someone dies by suicide, it's never anybody else's fault. You know, we do try and equip people with the skills to ask and probe and all of that. But at the end of the day, you know, they die by their own hand. It's it's something they've done. All we can hope to do is try and encourage people to talk and then encourage other people to listen in a particular way so that we can get people to, to sources of help. And, you know, through a whole population, if enough people do that, we can start preventing suicides. But it's never any one person's fault. Um, <clears throat> but, but, you know, if somebody says, <clears throat> sorry, if somebody says they're suicidal, um, or they're feeling that life's not worth living, or they're feeling down. I think that's important to ask really straight. Um, are, are you feeling suicidal? Are you feeling like harming yourself? Um, and I would use those words rather than saying something like, don't, you know, you're not thinking of doing something stupid, because that can make the person feel even more guilty. So often people who are suicidal feel really guilty anyway. They've maybe done something or they're... Um, you know, they're just ashamed of these feelings or ashamed that they might have a mental health problem. And by saying, don't do something stupid, you're, you're nearly shaming them again. Mm-hmm. Um, and you're shutting that down. So, so, you know, asking them, and, and it doesn't, it doesn't give them those thoughts because, you know, we, we do talk about suicide openly. There's, you know, everybody knows about it. Young kids even know about it after a certain age so you're not giving anybody an idea you're just opening up that line of conversation um and if they say yes or well or maybe you know you can probe probe deeper but i think it's really important not to be shocked at that point or not to to try and shut that down by telling them that's something they shouldn't do or they shouldn't think about again that can make them feel even more guilty um but it's it's just important to listen and to ask about and to ask about that, um, and to to validate that and, and say to them. So so you're saying you feel like harming yourself. You feel like life's not worth living, um, and then I think it's important to to actually find out where they are with that. Have they made a plan or something too? Um, because that's going to be really useful information for the next for the next step. Um, but it's always okay to ask about suicide and you know if they want to tell you their problems or the the things that they're worried about then that's okay too Um, but 
you know, they, they don't even need to do that. You just ask them how they feel. T- try and talk about feelings rather than reasons for feelings because we often don't know why we feel the way we do. That can be really kind of challenging sometimes. So if we ask about how they're feeling rather than why, why, what's wrong, you know, what is, is it this or is it, you know, I would never speculate. Um, just allow that person to discuss their feelings and, you know, be compassionate and be kind with them. Um, and you don't have to provide any answers, but it is really important that that you get help for them, especially if they've got a plan in place, if they've, you know, decided or talked about a method that they might use, then it's at that point, I think, that you, you should ask for help for that person, even if they tell you not to or discourage you from that. I think that's it's really important. Um, and and that, that's the really scary part because you're thinking I could lose a friend here. So, I, you know, I've been asked to keep this secret. Don't tell anybody, but you actually absolutely must, you know, and, and that's, it's hard. It's really hard. And knowing that line of, you know, is, is it okay not to, to, to tell or can I keep this? I think you need to, you need to phone Lifeline. And that's, that's what we would say. And I phoned Lifeline for people and, and you know, um, and they they will reach out and help that person. Tell and me they, about they, Lifeline then, because you know you see all these numbers, and I see names of organisations, mm-hmm. but I'll be honest with you, I don't know the difference between them. So, what? Tell me about Lifeline. Well, Lifeline are suicide prevention helpline in Northern Ireland, and they they can help people who are, they will help people who are suicidal. So they take calls from people in crisis. Um, they take calls from friends of people in crisis and they they will they will get you help they will intervene if someone's suicidal um, and they also provide suicide prevention counseling um, so that they the person would get face-to-face counseling with lifeline um, and usually fairly quickly too so there's there's a lot of talk about waiting lists and how difficult it is to get help for mental health problems but i know people who've been seen very very quickly by lifeline and they're there 24 hours a day and they're, they're fully trained counsellors. So um, it's an amazing resource. Not all, you know, not all countries would have that, that kind of provision. And it's not, um, you know, I think there's maybe not enough awareness or people don't know. Um, and there's so many great campaigns that Lifeline have done across Northern Ireland to, um, to raise awareness, really. Um, so... You know, lifelines for all of us. It's their number is oh eight oh eight eight oh eight eight thousand. So you call them. You can call them for yourself or somebody else, or just to test them, just to know that they're there, not to test. Them. That sounds that sounds a bit bad, but um, you know, sometimes uh, when when people are you know struggling, maybe they're not actually suicidal, but you know they may feel suicidal in the future. And we would talk about a thing called a safety plan. Um, where you know if we ever felt that we might be suicidal what would we do and lifeline would be one of the things that, that you would have on that safety plan and Samaritans too Samaritans are there as well 24 hours a day um they they listen to people who are suicidal or lonely or who want to talk about the, the problems so that they're there for everybody as well um and they do a text service too uh, and you know, so they've been there the whole way through COVID as well, um, and they their their number is one one six one two three, twenty four hours three six five days days a year, 
um, and they're just an amazing group of volunteers who provide that that 24-hour helpline for people. Is there a, you were saying about sort of keeping an eye out for signs, you know, if, if one of your friends maybe was sort of feeling low but not verbalising it, what would you say the signs might be? It's really hard. Um, it's, it's really hard to try and, and work out who's at risk of suicide and, and you know there's signs when people when people's mood goes way down and, and they talk in a way that, that suggests they have no hope for the future that's that's worrying that that might be a sign that they could that they're they're suicidal so um someone who talks about not being around in the future the the in the research we find that the lack of positive future thinking so if they're not talking about the future or seeing themselves in in a place you know in, in the future or what the future might like look like for them um if they've lost hope if they feel very defeated they talk about being defeated or humiliated or shamed those are the feelings that are associated with suicidal thinking um um, but it can come on quite quickly, <clears throat> so that it can be quite a sudden kind of thing. Where um, so so the, yeah, it can come on quite quickly, and and suicide, suicidal thoughts can can happen in response to um, to a life crisis that that happens. So a, a breakup or something like that can lead to suicidal thoughts and suicidal behaviour very very quickly. So people can see no other way out. Um, and in that moment, suicide is what they think about. And then if they have a me access to a method at that time, then they will act on those thoughts. So it's not necessarily always planned. Um, in some cases, it is planned and people leave notes and um, they have been suicidal for a long time. And maybe others might even be aware of that. Um, and again, it's one of these myths that people who, who uh, talk about suicide aren't going to take their lives you know that's not the case people who talk about suicide very well you know may may well end up dying by suicide um and and often do so we need to take that talk about suicide very very seriously but equally someone who's never really felt suicide could have something happen to them and then they might they might go to that place and, and act on those thoughts. So those kind of suicides can be very difficult to predict. And, and we sometimes talk about those as impulsive suicides or suicides that result from a behavior rather than any kind of logical choice or, or thinking that, that this is this is the right action right now. It's something people do. Um, and that's where you know we need to be careful about access to methods. Um, but but the signs are really that depression, anxiety, feeling that life's not worth living, talking about a lack of hope. Um, those those are those are signs, and, and it's, it is always okay to ask if someone's talking like that. It's always okay to ask them if if they're if they're suicidal. That's something they're thinking about. And then sometimes there aren't really any signs. Yeah, yeah, and in fact, sometimes people, um, if they've if they've kind of made a decision in a sense, they can they can start to seem a bit better. Um, that that life's improving. You, you might look at them and say they've been in good form, and for them, it's like they've resolved their problem or made a decision of um, of what to do about it. You know, so it, it, this is it's really really hard to know. 
which is why we should never ever feel guilty. It's impossible though um, not to feel feel guilty, I think, and we shouldn't be ashamed of feeling guilty, but but you know, it's never anybody else's fault yeah. when someone dies by suicide. It really, really isn't because this is not something that we can predict. There's been um, 20 years of research, risk assessment research, how do we predict risk of suicide? And it's really come up with, with very, very little um, that, that we can meaningfully use in a clinical context to decide who should get extra support or extra help, for example. And we're still left with the best, the best way of assessing someone is actually asking them are they suicidal and anybody who's suicidal should get a, a treatment for those suicidal thoughts. And those treatments will involve working out what's at the root of those thoughts um, and what the factors are, whether they're mental illness or life events and starting to try and resolve those whilst keeping the person safe whilst, whilst that's happening. So but we, we don't tell people, you know, you're not allowed to do this or you're not allowed to think like this. What we do is we ask that, that they, you know, don't act on those thoughts and get themselves through those times until we can work out all of these underlying problems. And we give them that hope that we can work out the underlying problems. Um, it, it can be a long process, but, but you know, most people who have suicidal thoughts don't diagnose thoughts and they do get through them. Um, and they live lives that they just never thought possible. Mm-hmm. You know, I um, had a conversation because I've become a bit of a lightning rod now for it. And um, people will say things like, did you know he was feeling that way? I'm like, no, didn't. Um, or people will tell me about their own... Um, Again, this comes by messages, conversations in person. It could be anywhere. Um, and one person told me once that they, they were feeling terrible and they decided, well, this is what I'm going to do. And felt a weight lifted because they'd made a decision that this, you know, they were going to end their life. But that feeling alone showed them that they could change how they felt and then didn't and sought help and was there to tell the tale. And that was the first time anybody had ever said anything like that to me. But, you know, just that the, the, the thought that it was going to be over had given them a euphoria that then he thought, hang on, actually, I can feel different. And that was enough. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Oh, the, the brain's an amazing thing, isn't it? You know, these feelings are caused by thoughts and we can, if we can change how we think about things, then we can change how we feel and life becomes worth living. Um, that was, I mean, obviously he went and he got help and he, because he was talking about how good the counsellor was. So I'm not trying to say that that was it and his life was brilliant. Mm-hmm. Again, but it gave him, it made him realise he could go in a different direction and he went in that direction. So, um, and sometimes, you know, it's when, when somebody's suicidal, what we would say is, you know, well, well, suicide's there, but can we just not do anything about that for now and look at every other option and mm-hmm. not, let's not panic and not do anything rash. Let's just leave it a night, a day, you know, a week. Let's just work on this. Let's just see, test out all of the other options. And usually, usually we can find other ways of, of helping them. Always like, but we need to know, we need to know that's a thing. It's, a, it's that disclosure, that first step. We need to know that they're feeling like this and they were covered up. And, you know, it's just hard. It can be really hard to, to, get, to get in there. And that's again why it's so important that you don't feel guilty. But 
that if we know we can we can do lots to prevent it um, and it's, it's a really hard and complex message to say suicide's preventable yet it's never any one person's fault mm-hmm. you know that this is like it sounds like a contradiction so whose responsibility is it to prevent it it's not yours as his friend it's not you know it's not even a therapist but but together if we all you know if we all work together we we know we we can help people with these thoughts and there's so much evidence now that if if people get interventions if we ask about the suicidal thoughts we can do things that will help reduce those thoughts um but sometimes treatment for a mental illness like an antidepressant or something like that often doesn't get to the root of the suicidal thoughts um and so we need to be careful when people go on medication you know that 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 feeling that the medication brings them that that everything's going to be okay that that in itself can increase the risk of suicide it's like a treatment effect so they have the strength and the the ability to do it so if you if you've got really bad depression um you can't get out of bed and you know even you know what what would be required uh, for a suicide is just not possible there but once 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 you start to recover the suicidal thoughts can come because you think oh I don't want to go back there again and all the problems that have caused the the, the depression in the first place are still there so um we, we need to be careful with medication I mean that that's but medication is really useful in treating mental health problems and if it's a low mood you know the medication can be really really good at lifting that and giving people clarity and helping them do things to rearrange their lives and feel better and make life better. It's, it's, I've used medication myself and it really, really helped. But there is, there's always that risk when somebody's suicidal as well. That the medication um, can, can, cannot work on its own. You know, we need a wee bit more than that. Mm-hmm. I'm exhausted now. <laughs> it is it's a really hard conversation and it must be hard for people listening to this as well you know um thinking about our friends and our loved ones we've lost so many people in northern ireland you know um and there's so much going on actually across across northern ireland to try and reduce the suicide rates and there's so many services out there i think the missing link really is getting people to those services um, so, so the, the the most recent data that, that I have would show that around thirty percent of people have have contact with mental health services. So seventy percent of the people who die by suicide have haven't been to, for, to a mental health service, and maybe some of them didn't need that, but a lot of them have never asked for help, have never disclosed that they're feeling like that. You know, and when we know there's so much we can do for people, it's just really important that we encourage those conversations and try and get people either to their GP or to Lifeline or Samaritans um, so, that, so that we can help them get through this. Um, because it's, it is really a very, you know, it's a, it's a very final solution that rules out all other options. So in that sense, it's not really a choice because you don't know what, what the alternative is. Because you you know that alternative's not there. Mm-hmm. Oh, you don't get to see what what might have been. You don't get to see what might have been, and life is full of surprises. Um, so, you know that this is something that we have to encourage people to ask for help, and know that that you you can get through this. That lots of people have got through this, and we need to keep telling those stories as well about the people who've got through it, who thought that, that their lives weren't worth living, and now 
they're actually really happy. And a lot of the problems they thought were insurmountable have either gone away or they've been resolved or they've got through them in some way. Mm-hmm. Um, and, it's, and again, I realize it's really hard for someone who's bereaved to hear this, you know, when they think about what might have been. Oh, my goodness. Mm-hmm. And it's not just what might have been for him, but for everybody, you know, all of us. Like so mm-hmm. many people miss him. Mm-hmm. Again, that's another that's um another one of the messages I get very regularly is, I miss the two of you in the mornings, or you know you were part of my day for well he was part of their day in the mornings for about eight or not maybe nine years. I was on the show for four and a half, but you know he had been doing breakfast for a lot of years before I was there, and then he you know he moved on to BBC and was there for a number of months, and so he's part of people's day. And, you know, and he, that was only going to be increased, you know, and then, and that's just the professional side of his life, but everything else. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's a huge loss. It's a huge loss. And, and people tell us, you know, when they're in a very dark place, if they'd known how loved they were, you know, at that time, that it would have helped them, you know, and it does help when you know that. So, yeah, it's it's terrible, but we need to, we just need to keep reaching out to each other and and being compassionate and kind, so that we can we can try and open up those conversations if possible. I think that you really hit the nail on the head. That's the key. It's that sort of compassion and kindness on a daily basis with people. Yeah, 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 and always thinking about you know what if that person is really struggling. Yeah, because I find I've really been struggling since since uh january but the thing that was honestly kept me going was all the messages of support that people sent me and some of them i didn't even open and read but i could see they were there you know it was just Mm -hmm. thousands and thousands and i thought these people don't actually know me you know they know radio me but they don't know me but even people were were messaging me their numbers and saying if you even need me to go to the shop if you need anything people just wanted to help and it was beautiful it was really beautiful. It was so, really knocked me over to see um, just how caring people were. There's somebody who was, you know, invariably a stranger to them, you know, it's mm-hmm. unbelievable. Mm-hmm. And, and that, yeah, and I think that the compassion and kindness was what got me through. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I think the pandemic has shown us that as well. You know, um, a lot of people at the start of this were saying, you know, there's going to be a huge surge in mental illness and, and suicide and everything and actually what we found is yes there was a lot of anxiety and and that's normal and to be expected of course but th- there was this surge of of um resilience of communities coming together um the clap for cares was an example of that where we really started thinking about the important stuff in life and what we wanted and what we valued you know what made life worth living um and there, there was that sort of effect, I think, that was very, very positive and got us through that as a, as a community, as a population. Um, so, you know, the power of those connections shouldn't be underestimated. And you should know that just by being with someone, you don't have to solve their problems, but just by telling them that you care about them, that's an intervention in and of itself. That interaction will be healing, will be therapeutic will help shift them so how you are as a person you know you don't need to be a counselor but just being there for someone and listening genuinely listening 
um, and showing that you care that, that that's that's really powerful but then i think if you're worried about suicide the next stage is ask the question and call for help yeah because quite often people tell you things but they don't want you to fix it they just want you to hear them they just yeah. want to be and heard and, as you and say, that takes the pressure off too kids yeah that takes the pressure off you don't have to fix it you're not expected to fix it and um, in fact you know, you can't move too quickly to fix things. You, you usually won't have all the answers um, for that person or you won't know the circumstances and your, your attempt at fixing will cause frustration because you'll be coming up with obvious things that they will have already thought of, you know? So yeah. just being there, just being there, is that, that's the intervention. But when someone's suicidal, always ask for help for them as well. You know, you can call the GP for somebody else too. If you're worried about them so ask the question call for help and that's about as much as i'm able for please keep talking please learn how to listen fully please keep the helplines in mind you can find the numbers online if you google lifeline or the samaritans but there's also lots of other mental health projects in your area here are some numbers now just in case you need them now lifeline is 0808 808-8000 and if you want to speak to Samaritans it's 116-123 and remember you don't have to know what you're going to say when you call just call say the word hello and they'll help with the rest and I'll be thinking about you